the, the question that I'm asking myself is, how does the universe actually work? What is the sort of lowest level machine code for how our universe works? And uh, the big surprise to me is that over the last six months or so, I think we figured out kind of a path into the answer to that question. So there's a lot of detail about how what we've figured out about the path into that question relates to what's already known in physics and lots of things about that. Lots of things about once, if we know this is the low-level machine code for the universe, what can we then ask ourselves about why we have this universe and not another and so on? Can we ask questions like, why does this universe exist? Why does any universe exist? These are, these are kinds of things I'm, I'm curious about. I'll tell you something that I, I was thinking about recently. So uh, the kinds of questions about sort of what's underneath our universe? How does our universe fundamentally work? Some of those questions are questions that people asked a couple of thousand years ago. You know, lots of uh, uh, Greek philosophers had their theories for how the universe fundamentally works. You know, is it atoms of space underneath? Is it uh, something, you know, is it a flow like a river or something? You know, how, does, how do things fundamentally work underneath? And, you know, we've got many layers of sort of uh, physics and mathematics sophistication since then. But um, what I'm doing kind of goes, in a sense, back to these core questions of how, does thing, how do things fundamentally work underneath? And, and for us, it's, it's this very simple structure that involves elements and relations that build into hypergraphs that evolve in certain ways, and then these hypergraphs build into multi-way graphs and multi-way causal graphs, and so on and so on and so on. And, and, and from pieces of the way those work, we see, oh, that's relativity, that's quantum mechanics, and so on, and just really wonderful and beautiful things that, that come out. One of the questions that, um, uh, that comes about when you, when you imagine that you might actually sort of hold in your hand a, a rule that will generate our whole universe. What, how do you then think about that? What, um, uh, what's the kind of, um, what's the way of understanding what's going on there? I think um, one of the most obvious questions is, why did we get this universe and not another? In particular, if the rule that we find is a comparatively simple rule, it, there's a question of, uh, how come we got the simple rule universe? That doesn't seem fair, so to speak. I mean, in a sense, the, the lesson since, you know, the time of Copernicus and so on has been, uh, no, our Earth isn't at the center of the universe. No, we're not special in this or that way. So if it turns out that the rule that we find for our universe is kind of this rule that, at least to us, seems simple, we get to ask ourselves the question, you know, how come we lucked out and got this simple universe, this universe with a simple rule? So I have to say, I wasn't expecting that there would be kind of a good sort of science level answer to that question. It was just like, well, we got this universe, we don't really know why. Um, one of the surprises from this uh, uh, project to try and find the fundamental theory of physics has been, I think we actually have an understanding of how that works. There's kind of three levels of understanding of how the universe works in this model of ours. It starts from kind of what one can think of as sort of atoms of space, these elements that are knitted together by connectivity to form what ends up behaving like physical space that we can move around in and so on. So that, 
the first level of kind of what's going on is that there are these, these elements and there are rules that describe how elements connected in a particular way should be transformed to elements connected in some other way. And this connectivity of the elements is what makes up when we look at, let's say, 10 to the 100, 10 to the 400 of these elements, that's what uh, behaves like space as we're familiar with it. And not only space, but also all of the things that are in space, all the matter, all the particles, all that kind of thing. Those are all just features of this underlying structure and its, its detailed um, uh, way of connecting these, these elements together. So the first sort of thing is we've got this, this idea of um, these... Uh, the sort of this set of transformation rules that apply to those those underlying elements, and they the in in this kind of uh, setup, space is a very different thing from time. I mean, one of the I think one of the wrong turns of twentieth century physics was this idea that space and time should always be packaged together into this sort of uh, four dimensional space time continuum. I think that's wrong. I think time is actually a different kind of thing from space. Um, I think time is sort of the inexorable uh, operation of computation in figuring out what the next state will be from previous states, um, whereas space is something that is a more specific kind of uh, uh, extent of, in, in this particular case, the sort of hypergraph that knits together these different elements. But in any case, so from this idea of this sort of hypergraph being rewritten uh, through, through time, what turns out when you are an observer embedded within that hypergraph, the only thing that you're ultimately sensitive to is the question of which events, which little updates that happen inside this hypergraph affect which other ones. What are the causal relationships between different events in, in this uh, process of, of time evolution? And from that you get what we call a causal graph of, um, of what event affects what other event. And it turns out then that uh, special relativity and then general relativity emerge basically from properties of that causal graph. In our way of thinking about fundamental physics, there are sort of three levels of description which end up corresponding to essentially general relativity, theory of space and time and gravity, quantum mechanics, and then a the third level that is something different that I can talk about. So, in sort of the, 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 the lowest level in these models that we're constructing, you just have all these elements, and they're just, the only thing we know about one of these elements is it's just a thing. It might have a, it has a unique name. We don't have to know what its name is, but it's just a unique thing. And then all we know is which things are related to which other things. So, for example, if we say that everything is related to, uh, that, there are, that there are relations that involve pairs of things, binary relations, then we can say we've got these things and they, they are, they're, they're pairs that are related. We can draw that as a, as a graph, as a mathematical graph or a network, um, where we're just putting down points and we're joining those points by a line. We happen to need a slight generalization of that, usually called a hypergraph in mathematics, um, where instead of just having relations between pairs of things, you can have relations between triples or, or quadruples of things and so on. And so you don't have just a, you can't represent that by just a line between two things. It's kind of like a, a bag of things that corresponds to each hyperedge. 
but that's that's kind of a, a detail not not really important to the sort of big picture but the the thing that is uh, is relevant is sort of the underlying rules just say uh, some collection of elements that are rela related in a certain way are transformed to some other collection of elements related in some other way and the whole operation of the universe consists of just rerunning that particular rule a gazillion times and maybe the the gazillion is about 10 to the 400 for our universe i'm not sure about that that's a that's based on one estimate of, of how how this might work but um so uh the the sort of the the first level is to understand as you apply these rules what are the causal relationships between you apply a rule in one place uh, that rule produces certain output then that output gets used when the rule is applied again in the same place or in a nearby place. And you can draw up this kind of network, this graph of the causal relationships of what output is needed to feed the input to another event, another updating event. And that causal graph turns out to be sort of our representation of space-time. And that causal graph has properties that uh, reproduce special relativity um, and then general relativity, the theory of gravity, a um, bunch of details about how that actually works. But um, uh, that's, that's sort of a, a feature of these models that in the limit of a very large number of, um, uh, of, these, of these little update rules and so on, with certain assumptions, like the assumption that the limiting space of our universe is finite dimensional then it follows that what happens satisfies Einstein's equations for general relativity. So then the, the sort of the next level of this is you say, well, okay, you're just telling me apply these transformations to this hypergraph, to this collection of relations and so on. But there might be many possible places where a particular transformation might apply. Which one should I run? Which one should I do? So the next piece of these models is, well, actually just do all of them. And what you'll build up is what we call a multi-way graph that represents all possible updates that you can have done. Now, the question of if you do one update, it might allow you to do another update. If you don't do that update, it wouldn't allow you to do that update. So it's not just saying just do everything. There, there's still a lot of content in that. There's still a lot of kind of uh, structural information in, well, what could happen after what? What can happen at the same time as what? and so on. So this multi-way graph turns out to be uh, a representation of what in quantum mechanics people have thought about as kind of the path integral, the kind of it's, it's sort of you, the, quant the idea of quantum mechanics as opposed in classical mechanics, you say you do something, you throw a ball, the ball moves in a particular de definite directory, de de trajectory. In, um, in quantum mechanics, kind of what one imagines is, well, actually, the ball has many possible trajectories it follows, and they're all weighted in a certain way. And what we observe corresponds to, let's say, some weighting or some, uh, some, some combination of those trajectories and so on. So in our models, that corresponds to what happens in this multi-way graph, that there are these many possible paths that, um, uh, that can be followed in the multi-way graph. And then you can ask questions like, OK, well, in quantum mechanics, we believe we measure definite things and so on. It turns out, and it's really, really very elegant and wonderful, 
that in relativity, we're used to this idea of reference frames, observers uh, uh, sort of uh, thinking about the universe in terms of their reference frame. Are they at rest? Are they traveling at a certain velocity? Are they accelerating? You know, what, what, what is their state of motion? In quantum mechanics, we, it turns out we have this analog of reference frames. We call them quantum observation frames or QOFs um, that uh, uh, represent the way that we're choosing to, uh, to kind of uh, experience this multi-way system of possibilities. And in any case, one can reproduce the various results of quantum mechanics and we're sort of busily going through and, uh, and sort of following, trying to reproduce all the different things that show up in quantum mechanics. It's really kind of cool because one of the things we can do is take, for example, quantum computers, and there's a formalism for quantum computers. We have a nice implementation of that, and we can actually compile that formalism into these multi-way graphs. So we can say, if you've got a quantum computer that's described in the standard formalism of quantum computing in this way, then just you just run this program and you'll get a multi-way graph that basically implements the same thing. So that's kind of a proof that these multi-way graphs actually reproduce the physics of, of quantum computing. So in any case, the, the, um, uh, uh, the, the, the thing that um, uh, one then finds is, well, okay, so one of, one of my favorite results here is in space-time, sort of a big result is Einstein's equations, which say that the curvature of space depends on the presence of matter. That, uh, that when you are trying to decide uh, that, that if you have a, a thing that is following a straight line, let's say you shoot a laser in some direction, normally you think a laser just, the light from a laser just goes in a straight line. But actually, when there's a, a massive object, like a star or a black hole or something like that, the, um, the path of that laser light will be, will be turned by the presence of that mass. And that's Einstein's equations describe how that turning works. And um, they say that the curvature of space, the amount of turning depends on the amount of energy, uh, energy momentum um, that exists in, in space. Okay, so that's, that's how it works in, in sort of the space-time case. Okay, so now in our multi-way graph, we also think about paths through the multi-way graph. And we can also think about the presence of energy momentum in the multi-way graph, the presence of energy momentum in the, essentially the quantum system that is described by this, this multi-way graph. And something really amazing happens, which is that what is the Einstein equations in space-time, in, in, the, in the classical uh, idea of space and time, turns out to be exactly Feynman's path integral in quantum mechanics. So in other words, the the idea of these, these various paths that are, that are representing the possibilities in quantum mechanics, those paths are effectively being turned in this multi-way space by the presence of energy momentum, or more specifically by the presence of Lagrangian density, which is a relativistically invariant analog of energy momentum. Um, and uh, uh, that's, so in other words, the, the, the core of quantum mechanics, which is this this, uh, the, the way that the phases work in the path integral is the exact same phenomenon as the core of classical general relativity, um, the, the way that trajectories are turned by the presence of energy momentum in, in space-time. So that's a, a pretty cool thing, and I'm pretty excited about that. When we think about this multi-way system, we're saying you're applying this particular rule. This particular rule can apply in different places, in different ways, just do all possible applications of that rule. Okay, now go one level up from that. And let's say 
that not only are you applying a particular rule in all possible ways, you're also applying all possible rules. So at every moment, you are saying, let's look at all possible rules that I could apply to update this uh, piece of this, uh, of this thing that represents our universe. So you might say, well, how on earth can you ever conclude anything if you're saying you apply all possible rules at every possible point? Well, it turns out, again, somewhat more technically, there's a thing called causal invariance, which is kind of the, the thing that makes it possible to say definite things in actually both the space-time case and the quantum mechanics case. It applies again here. Um, but the main point is that you're, you're saying, well, at, at, every, at every event, there is, you can have an update event that corresponds to every possible rule you might apply. Okay, so then... This question I mentioned before about reference frames and observers and so on, you as an observer of the universe could choose a frame in which you're only considering the path through this sort of ultra multi-way system of possible, all possible applications of rules. You're only considering the path that corresponds to the application of one particular rule. So that would be one that's like, well, I've got my way of describing the universe and I'm only going to consider that one. And the fact that all these other possible paths are being followed, well, yes, but I don't, I'm not interested in those aspects of the universe. I'm just interested in the aspects of the universe that correspond to the particular rule that I've identified as being my reference frame for thinking about the universe. Now, you might say, but gosh, there are all these other universes and they're all doing different things. Because of this property of causal invariance, in the end, it doesn't matter. In the end, they're all in some sense doing the same thing. We're looking at essentially all these possible quantum states and we're arranging them in space, in, in, not in physical space, but in a, a different kind of space, in this branchial space. And in quantum mechanics, we have this notion of entanglement, of some sort of relationship between two states. Branchial space is essentially a map of entanglement space. And when you look at sort of the extent of branchial space, you're saying, how entangled are these two quantum states? If they're very entangled, they'll be close in branchial space. If they're not very entangled, they'll be far apart in branchial space. And in a sense, the, um, when we start talking about measurement in quantum mechanics, we're talking about looking at particular regions of branchial space, looking at kind of slices of branchial space in various ways. Okay, so that's when we're applying a particular rule in different ways. We're, we're representing those different possible results of different applications by this branchial space of possible results. Okay, so now let's come back to the case where we're applying all possible rules. Then we have this thing that we call ruleal space, which is the space of outcomes from all these different possible rules. We have this kind of ruleal space of possibilities. And there's a lot that we can say about these different reference frames with which we study ruleal space. Um, but uh, the, um, the, main, the main point here is there is ultimately, you can, there is this sort of ultra multi-way system that corresponds to the application of all possible underlying rules. So when we ask the question, why, is it, why are we looking at this universe and not another universe, that question never has to be asked because in this ultra multi-way system, every conceivable universe is in there. But because of this property of causal invariance and so on, it turns out that uh, there is in some sense, in some sense, they all do the same thing. Okay, this sounds very bizarre. How can this possibly be true? Let me give an indication of why we already know this has to be true. So one of the fundamental results of computation is this idea of universal computation. 
it used to be thought, go back to, I don't know, 1900 or something, and you would say to somebody, you know, let me make me a machine that will compute square roots. Okay, the person might construct this machine, it's got all kinds of cogs in it and so on, or maybe electrical switches by then, and it computes square roots. You say, okay, now I, you know, I want to pick out something from a different shelf of the store. I want to get a machine that, um, uh, I don't know, figures out whether words are palindromes. Okay, so that's it. Then it's like, well, we, then we get a completely different machine off the shelf with a completely different arrangement of cogs and gears and switches and all that kind of thing. Okay, so that was the kind of view of computation that existed before basically the 1930s. And then as a result of Gödel and then later Turing, um, there was this sort of slow emerging understanding that you didn't need to do that, that you could have a single universal machine with a particular configuration of cogs and switches and whatever else. And just by changing the way you set the machine up at the beginning, the programming of the machine, you could get it to compute anything you wanted to compute. Now, people didn't really know how universal that kind of universal machine was. They thought, well, you know, Gödel thought, well, maybe it's universal with respect to sort of mathematical things, but maybe human minds work differently. Uh, people in physics thought maybe it's universal with respect to kind of uh, things that you can make out of a digital computer, but it isn't the way physics works. Um, up until actually probably the 1980s or even beyond. I mean, I think my own work on sort of the relationship between physics and computation probably was, was an important piece in, in sort of having people take the idea that universal computation really is universal, even with respect to things in physics, more seriously. And, and we still don't know that for sure, but within the, the, um, this domain of things that we can represent with a universal computer, one might say, well, okay, I'm representing my model of the universe as something that can be computed with a universal computer, with a Turing machine, with a uh, with my computer on my desk, whatever else, or an infinite version of my computer on my desk, and so on. Um, and, and one might say, well, gosh, why is the computer on my desk any better than the computer on your desk? Why is it better than a Turing machine? Well, it turns out they're all universal, so you can program any one of them to do anything you can program any of the others to do, or you can even program one of them to emulate one of the other ones. So this idea of universal computation already tells one that once you say that the universe is uh, something that can be generated by a universal computer, you already kind of know that uh, there is, in a sense, uh, that, that that fact already is telling you that there's some sort of uh, singleness to the way of describing the universe. Because that um, uh, you can say, well, uh, for example, in this in the space I'm describing, this kind of ruleal space of all possible rules and so on, um, everything that's there is representable by a universal computer. And so all these different reference frames and so on, you can translate between reference frames by essentially having what amounts to one universal computer description emulate another universal computer description by by giving it the appropriate programming to emulate that other thing. So in a sense, the, um, the fact that there's sort of really only ultimately one description you need for the universe is something we kind of already have a hint about from this idea of universal computation. So in a sense, the, the, the one ultimate fact would be that the universe is computational, that the universe can be represented by a universal computer. That fact is not self-evident. It might not be true. It might be that there are hypercomputers that go beyond 
sort of the computers that we can build with Turing machines and our universe might be a hypercomputer, but I don't think it is. And I think that what we're learning from this kind of adventure in, in studying fundamental physics is that no, there is actually a description of the universe in terms of actual ordinary universal computation and we're finding the details of how that works. And I, I think, um, so, so in a sense, one of the things that I was very curious about is, you know, when we find the rule for the universe, how come it's this rule and not another? So how do we think about that? And what we realize is what we're actually finding is within this space of all possible rules, we're finding a reference frame that is our way of understanding the universe. And so what this leads to is a realization that uh, when, when we, we have a certain way of describing the universe that is based on our senses, the way our physics has developed and so on. We have a notion, for example, it's useful to us to think about things at a fixed time, but everywhere in space. You know, we look around us, the speed of light is very fast compared to our sensory processing. So for us, it looks like we're seeing sort of everywhere in space at a particular time. And that's part of our sort of way of describing the universe. And we, we set things up that way. I mean, if we were, if we, if our primary means of sensory input was olfaction, was smell, then we probably wouldn't think about things that way because, you know, smells travel very slowly. They travel by, you know, diffusion of molecules through, through air or something. And so our notion of simultaneity, our idea that it's worthwhile to describe the universe by a series of, of, time, of successive times where everything in space happens at that time probably will be different. But we can imagine even vastly more extreme differences of description of the universe. And what we're realizing is what we're ultimately doing in finding a fundamental theory for physics is we are finding uh, sort of a description of the physical world in the reference frame that connects with kind of the things that we are used to dealing with in both of our sensory input and the mathematics and physics that we built. And it's kind of, you know, I've, I've spent much of my life as a computational language designer and, and that's sort of a similar problem, but a little bit easier. In computational language, what you're trying to do is you've got over here what computers do, over here what, how humans think about things. And you're trying to make a bridge between the way humans think and the kinds of things that happen computationally. So in a sense, what one's doing in finding this fundamental theory of physics is it's a three-legged version of the language design problem. We have humans over here, we have the physical universe over here, and we have computers over here. And so the challenge is, can we find a description of the universe that, I mean, you know, one way to describe the universe is just say, look at the universe, here it is, it does what it does. That's, we don't think that would be a satisfactory model of the universe. That's not something that, that pulls the universe into something that, that we humans can say we understand. And so what we're, what we're now, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to have something where we have something we humans understand something through the medium of computers to try and sort of take that understanding and kind of sort of puff it out into something that can be made to represent sort of all the complexity we see in the, in, in the universe. And then we have actual physics over here. And so we're sort of doing this three-legged language design problem of can we find this description language that, uh, that will knit these three things together. And I, and I view that as being sort of the purpose of our project to do that. And that's sort of why it is 
it will be unsurprising if, if, the, if the sort of description that we come up with for the universe has this or that form, that is as much a reflection of us and our way of thinking as it is a reflection of something sort of fundamental about the universe. So, so for example, one of the consequences of this is that it, it gives one this idea that there are very different kind of planes of description or even planes of existence in the universe. You know, we view the universe in terms of these simultaneous moments in time, this idea of, you know, material objects that work in this way or that way. And um, this is something that is, I think, much more specific to us than we imagine. I mean, I always have thought, you know, I've been interested in, you know, imagine the extraterrestrials and imagine, you know, an extraterrestrial intelligence and imagine the problem of communicating. And one thing I've, I've often claimed is that, well, you know, if these are entities within our universe, at least they have the same physics. But I think that's wrong. Um, because I think that what we realize is that there are forms of description of the universe that are utterly incoherent with the ones that we have, where the things that are being identified as being sort of knitted together and significant are just utterly different from the ones that we choose to do that with. So, for example, as I mentioned, this notion that we knit together these all these different points in space at a given time, that's pretty specific to our experience of the universe, which is an experience where our speed of sensory processing is much slower than the speed of light. You know, if we were a completely different size, if we were, I don't know, the size of a galaxy, that would not be our experience, the, the, um, uh, depending on the speed of our processing. But um, it could be the case that the speed of our processing is actually very fast compared to the speed of light over the distance scales that we're interested in. And so then our description of the universe would be very different. And so it is as much a reflection of us, what our fundamental theory of physics is, as it is a reflection of the universe. And that sort of, that sort of breaks the conundrum that I long wondered about, about sort of, if we have the rule for the universe, how do we understand why it's this rule and not another? So you know, having sort of felt that I've got some understanding of that and sort of why there's only, in a sense, one universe, why it makes no sense. You can say, well, there could be a copy of our universe. That's fine. But can there be an incoherent universe, which is where we got this rule and that universe got that rule? Well, the answer is no, I think. Could there be entities within the universe that understand the universe in utterly different ways? Yes. But it's still the same universe. So then the question, which you're asking me what I'm thinking about now, I... I'll tell you, my, um, one of the things I've been thinking about recently is, can we have any hope of explaining why the universe exists? That is, we've got... Um, okay, so, so here's kind of how, how it might work. So first thing we're doing, when we say the universe, normally we think about, in doing science, we think about we're doing sort of inductive... Uh, inference of some kind. We know certain phenomena, we're saying, so there must be a scientific law, and therefore this thing happens, etc., etc., etc. But we always kind of imagine that our induction of nature is approximate. We say, well, we observe this, and we observe that, and we think it's going to do this, but we're not, you know, we're not ultimately sure that's the way nature works. This project of ours will essentially reduce physics to mathematics. That is, what we're saying is we can find a, an underlying rule for the physical universe in which the, the, the operation of the universe is as inexorable as generating the digits of pi or something like that, or as inexorable as multiplying two numbers together, and here's the result. What our universe does is this inexorable computation that comes about 
through sort of the consequences of this underlying rule. There's no, oh, we've made an approximation here. Oh, there's going to be some more fundamental theory. No, it's just, this is it. It's this thing that in principle, although we can't actually do it as fast as, you know, we can't predict what the universe is going to do because to do that requires as much computation as the universe itself goes through to, to figure out what it's doing. And since, among other things, we're embedded within the universe, we're never going to be able to outrun the universe and say, well, of course, the universe is just going to end and the answer is 42 type thing. Um, we, we just have to sort of watch the universe unfold and see what it does. Once we have this underlying rule, the rest of the universe is sort of inexorable. And we can say, in what sense does that rule exist? You know, because we can write it down. It's, it's some piece of mathematics. We can write it down. Why does the thing get actualized? Why is it not just, well, you could generate the digits of pi, but they're not actually being generated. They're not, you know, it's not something like, it's not something where we're, there are little critters that are living in the digits of pi and, and you know, uh, admiring their various configurations of digits and so on. It's just, well, there's this abstract generation of the digits of pi. But there's something about the universe that's different from its pure abstract representation. Somehow the universe has been actualized because, uh, you know, it, 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 or I, I think. Um, and the question is, could we, could we know why that happened, how that happened? What could we know about that? Okay, so I have, a, I have a speculation. I don't know if it's going to turn out to be correct. And it has to do with kind of a, a version of the same approach that Gödel used to, to figure out um, things about uh, sort of where mathematics can't reach. And um, so, well, most, Gödel's most famous result is his incompleteness theorem that says that uh, from that from within the axiomatic system of arithmetic, there are statements that you can write down that are statements about arithmetic. They say this equation with this you know structure, etc., etc., etc. They're statements about arithmetic, but where that axiomatic system of, of arithmetic, that finite collection of axioms, so-called piano axioms, can't ever tell you whether this arithmetic question that you've asked what the answer to it is. Uh, and the, the, so that's sort of Gödel's most famous theorem. There's also his second incompleteness theorem, which says, actually, from within arithmetic, you can't prove or disprove that arithmetic is a consistent axiomatic system, that it can never establish something which is both true and not true, or something like that. So, okay, so what, why is that relevant to what we're talking about? So if we look at what did Gödel most importantly do. What he most importantly did was he took what seemed like a kind of logical, philosophical statement. The one he chose was the statement, this statement is unprovable. He took that statement and he showed that there was a way of representing that statement in terms of arithmetic. So what he did was he said, the idea of provability can be represented uh, using Gödel numbering as this sequence of numbers and equations and things like that. He essentially made a compiler that went from this statement is unprovable down to a machine code that was a bunch of equations involving integers and arithmetic, basically. So he took the statement, this statement is unprovable, and he compiled it into arithmetic. And so, therefore, he showed that that statement was an arithmetic statement. But that statement, in that particular case, he then used the sort of paradoxical structure of that statement to show that there existed statements which 
while they could be represented in terms of arithmetic, could never be reached with a, a finite proof in terms of the axioms of arithmetic. Okay, why is that relevant to our case? So I have the suspicion that statements about the existence of the universe, that it might be possible to essentially compile such a statement into something which can be essentially executed in the low-level machine code of physics. And if one can do that, if one can basically show that a sort of uh, a statement, a meta-physical statement, so to speak, a statement about, about the existence of physics, for example, if one can show that that statement, or particularly a paradoxical version of that statement, is actually a statement that can be stated in terms of physics, then one has the potential to show that, in the end, from within our universe, for entities within our universe, there will simply be no way to establish the, you know, if you make a statement, uh, this universe was, um, uh, well, even, even uh, sort of, if you have what you think of as a proof that the universe exists, there will be no finite proof that can ever be a given, I mean, this is my speculation of how this might work, that for entities within the universe, there could be no finite proof. You might be able to show that there could be no finite proof of the existence of the universe. So, so this is, uh, I mean, so it, it then, I, I don't really know how to, I mean, this is, you're asking, what am I thinking about? This is the thing I'm thinking about is, is kind of how do, you, how do you understand that sort of beyond physics question and how do you use sort of the methods that we know from mathematics and logic and computation and so on to address a question like that? And I don't know how it's going to come out, but that's my, that would be, to me, a somewhat satisfactory answer to why does the universe exist? I don't know whether it's satisfactory or not, but, but um, uh, you know, why does the universe exist? Answer, the proof that it exists is a proof that we cannot generate. We can generate no finite proof or disproof of that as entities within this universe. So that would be, that's one possibility. I mean, I, I think that I have been curious and um, haven't really done my homework properly on this. Uh, you know, these questions like, why does the universe exist? Why are the abstract laws of the universe actualized? One would think that that would be a question that would have been thought about in sort of a time when theological thought was kind of a, a sort of the leading edge of, of how people thought about the universe. I mean, there were certainly things like, for instance, Spinoza is famous for having said, you know, the universe is the thoughts of God actualized, so to speak. So in other words, which is to say that uh, when we think about our sort of underlying rule for the universe, there is a, there's sort of this, this idea of an inexorable rule by which, you know, in the, in the theological version of this, you know, God operates the universe. It's, there's this rule that's operating the universe and, and that God has no choice about how the universe operates because there's just this rule that's applied. And, and so in, in Spinoza's version of, you know, the universe is the thoughts of God actualized. It's kind of like these thoughts of God are being are the result of applying this rule, and our universe is the actualization of that. But the question is, how, why is there an actualization? And so I'm sort of curious how that, um, uh, you know, whether there's a way of, of understanding that. Uh, you know, as I say, I, I have this sort of potential sort of mathematical logic way of trying to understand that. I think that the, um, and I'm, I'm very mindful of the fact that, that the, one is quickly descending into a lot of complicated um, uh, philosophy, I don't know, there's this, uh, in fact, Gödel himself had a, 
had an attempt of a proof of the existence of God that was a proof from mathematical logic. And it's, they always tend to be, these proofs of things like that are fraught with issues like, is existence a predicate? Which is a whole complicated philosophical mess. Um, and so the question is, can one cut through all of that if one actually has an understanding of how our universe works? Don't know the answer, but that's the thing I'm, I'm curious about. And a question that I was asking myself recently was, of the things that we do today, uh, what will look as kind of primitive in their description as to say, oh, there's this, you know, immortal soul, which we would now say, we might now say, is this abstract computation that is immortal in the sense that that abstraction has nothing to do with the specifics of, you know, brain tissue or whatever else. It's just an abstract, almost mathematical computation. So what is it that we talk about today that will seem similarly naive? And I think one of the main things that, that I see is this idea that so much of the universe isn't worth describing. So what do I mean by that? When we, it's a lesson from thermodynamics, from other kinds of things, we just say lots of stuff is just random heat. We say the configuration of air molecules in this room we don't need to describe that. It doesn't matter. It's nothing that we do is affected by the detailed configuration of all of those individual molecules. So let's just not talk about that. Let's just say there's a certain temperature and pressure of air in this room, and that's all we care about. I suspect that that will eventually seem very naive. That, in a sense, when we... Uh, this sort of notion that there's so much of the universe that doesn't matter... Um, that that and, and perhaps the reason we say that is we exist at a certain scale. We are not sensitive to these individual molecules and what they do. We're only sensitive to the aggregate effect of you know the pressure of these uh, trillion trillion molecules that that might be in this this region of of, of air. Um, and um, but so for example, even if we operated at a much smaller scale we might be much more acutely aware of this particular molecule did this. Now, when we operate at that smaller scale, we're operating in this multi-way graph of quantum mechanics and so on, so that's a whole other level of, of sort of complexity of description. But I think this, this idea that... Um, actually, when it comes to quantum measurement, we've got the same kind of thing. We're saying, we want to say something definite happened. Don't just tell me it's a superposition of quantum states. I want to know what happened. Um, and, and that's a... Uh, uh, you know, we, we insist on having this notion of definite things happen at a scale of relevance to our senses and so on. So I suspect that that's a, a place where, in the end, there will be forms of description of the world that are sensitive to many more aspects of what happens than the ones that we're currently dealing with. In a sense, it's, it's like saying, you know, there's sensory data that we have, which in the case of, you know, a gas, it's just the total temperature and pressure or something. But the true sensory data might be this giant list of all of these different detailed things about the particular configuration of, of molecules that formed this elaborate ring of stuff that represented this computation that did this or that thing. I don't know how to describe it. If I did, we would be in the future now, so to speak. But, um, uh, you know, I think that that's, a, that's an example of something that I think is a... Um, uh, that is, is a, it sort of adds humility to our view of science, so to speak, that there are these things, even though we are, we're very proud of the, the level of description that we're able to get, there are many more levels 
that we're not able to get and, and the sort of realization that in when we think about physics that there are these different reference frames in Rulial space that correspond to essentially utterly incoherent ways to describe the universe. It, possibly even in the way that human thinking has evolved, you know, we have our particular logical scientific way to describe what happens in the universe. There are other ones, you know, when people tell me about, you know, some, uh, you know, Eastern philosophy approach to thinking about the universe, and I'm just like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, it's not something I've ever, you know, really been able to wrap my brain around. And, uh, and quite possibly, it, you know, there's a, there's a version of that, that is, sort of has the same relationship as as our kind of understanding of of how computation works to the sort of theological understanding of souls um you know that there may be a similar sort of prong that needs to be built in that direction to sort of make more detailed uh results and and ideas from from that sort of underlying different different approach to thinking about the universe how can you talk about the universe as a thing when the universe is supposed to be everything why does that make sense? Actually, the universe, our physical universe, is a specific thing. There are things that one can imagine that are other than our physical universe. To say that we have a fundamental theory of physics is to say we know the thing that corresponds to our physical universe, and it's not this thing over here that we can imagine but that is not our physical universe. What do I mean by that? So, for example, in, um, uh, well, in, in computation, there are limits to what something like a Turing machine computer can do. If you ask, a, if you say to a Turing machine, give me a systematic way to tell what will be the infinite time result of running a Turing machine. Okay, well, you could just run the Turing machine, but that's not going to work because it's going to take, you're asking what's the infinite time result from running the Turing machine. So unless you have a way to speed up the running of the Turing machine, you could be, it could take you an infinite time to answer that question. But let's just imagine that you have something which is an, what's usually called an oracle for the Turing machine. That's just something which says, okay, you know, I'm good. I can just tell you the answer. You don't have to run it for an infinite time. I can just tell you the answer. It's 17 or something, right? And so you can imagine. So there is this computation. There are these, all these Turing machines that compute and they compute and they compute. And within the set of all those Turing machines, they're never going to be able to systematically answer this infinite time question. It's, that question is going to look undecidable to all of those uh, Turing machines. But yet you have this hyper Turing machine, this hypercomputer, and it says, I can tell you the answer is 17. I'm all good. Okay, so that's an example of something that is uh, a, a type of thing that you can imagine. You can even make certain mathematical statements about it. You can imagine it, but it is not, the, 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 the claim is it's not actualized in our universe. So in other words, there is, it is not a tautological statement to say something about the universe. It is to say, to have a fundamental theory of physics is to say, this is the stuff that happens in our universe, and this is stuff that never happens in our universe. So for example, in our fundamental theory of physics, our universe simply doesn't do hypercomputation. In other words, if, if you want the result to the, uh, for example, for our universe, you could ask the question, what will our universe do after an infinite time? Sorry, you can't get the answer to that in our universe. 
Now you can imagine a universe which is out there being a more sophisticated universe, which can always answer that question and say, okay, your universe, your universe gets 41 as its, as its final result. Your universe gets 47 as its final result and so on. That's a thing you can imagine, but it isn't, according to our model, it isn't our universe. Um, so that, in, in some sense, that's what one's saying by talking about the universe. You're saying, what are the set of things that are actualized and what are the set of things that are not, that are imaginable but not actualized? That's the sense in which it is meaningful to talk about the universe as, as a thing. And I, I think that the, uh, there's a different issue, which is, um, uh, you know, as entities within our universe, how can we say anything about what our universe does? So there's this idea of computational irreducibility that I kind of invented in the 1980s that is sort of a, a finer version of things like Gödel's theorem and so on, which basically is about the question of if you are doing a computation, if you have a computation, is it an irreducible computation or is it a computation where you can readily jump ahead and say what the answer is going to be? So, for example, let's say my computation just went one zero, one zero, one zero, just kept on doing that. And I say, what's going to happen after a million steps? You can immediately say, well, a million mod two is zero, therefore you'll get a zero at that step, let's say. Okay, so the question is, are there computations which have the property that within the class of computations that can be done by, let's say, Turing machines, or as we now believe, our universe, there is no way to jump ahead. They are irreducible. The only, the only way to get the answer to the computation is just to run the computation. Okay, so my claim of a thing I call the principle of computational equivalence is that computational irreducibility is, is ubiquitous among computational systems. And in particular, it's what, for example, makes nature seem complex to us because the computations it's running are of the same sophistication as the computations that are running in our brains. So it, it's something where we, we can't readily predict what's going to happen because it's an irreducible computation. It's something where we just have to follow each step to see what happens. So one of the questions is, given the universe, if it follows some computational rule, why can we say anything about what the universe does? Why isn't it all mired in computational irreducibility? Why do we have... And, and so I actually thought, as we, as we started, I, you know, I started this project to try and figure out fundamental physics 30 years ago, and, and, and then I've stopped many times, and I had stopped for a long period of time for reasons I can, can explain and might be interesting to talk about. Um, but when I restarted it, I really expected that, well, we might be able to say something about 10 to the minus 1,000 seconds after the beginning of the universe, but after that we will be so mired in computational irreducibility that we wouldn't be able to make sort of big statements about the universe. Well, turns out I was wrong. And um, turns out that what we learnt is that there is a layer of computational reducibility. We, we kind of already knew that within any computationally irreducible system, there are always pockets of computational reducibility. But what we, what we realized is basically most of physics, as we know it, lives in a layer of computational reducibility that sits on top of, a, of the computational irreducibility that corresponds to sort of the underlying stuff of the universe. So for example, all of these things about, oh, I don't know, statements about relativity and reference frames and all of these equations that are global statements about space-time, these all sit 
in this layer of computational reducibility. And that's both why we can conclude something from our models. It's also, in a sense, why we humans have the impression that we can say things about how things work in the world. It might be the case that everything we see in the world is just so incredibly, irreducibly complex to understand. It's all an irreducible computation. We can never say anything about what's going to happen in the world. And there are plenty of things where we can't say what's going to happen in the world, but there are plenty of things where we can. And those are the layer, those are the pieces of computational reducibility. And those are the, um, uh, those are the things that sort of physics has tied into. You know, I, I might say something about computational irreducibility I think is sort of interesting. The, um, you know, Okay, one question. Let's, let's zoom out a little bit to this whole fundamental theory of physics project and ask, why does one care? You know, in other words, we have models of physics. We can compute all kinds of things from them. Why does it matter what the underlying very, very low-level machine code of the universe actually is like? Well, some level, it doesn't really matter. We can keep doing our engineering and keep doing our physics. I doubt that there will be short-term technological consequences of knowing sort of how physics is, is really far down, 10 to the minus 100 meters, length scales, all that kind of thing. I doubt there will be immediate technological consequences. It's a little bit like saying in biology, if somebody says, okay, we now know how life was you know, first created on Earth. It's like, okay, that's nice, but doesn't affect you know, your average biomedical researcher at all to know that kind of low-level fact. Same with physics. But here's the thing I think is sort of interesting. I've been kind of, kind of musing about why we care. Okay, so we look back in the history of physics. One of the things that was sort of an important moment in the history of physics was uh, Copernicus's efforts in the 1500s of, um, uh, you know, people had got Ptolemy and so on, had all these, uh, you know, schemes for computing positions of planets based on epicycles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera with the assumption that the Earth was the center of the universe and you could compute all these positions of planets and it worked pretty well, actually. It was a pretty, pretty accurate way of doing predictions. In fact, the really, the humorous thing is that, you know, people say, oh, epicycles were bad news. But, but actually, if you look at how do we actually compute positions of things in the modern world, it's, uh, we are mathematically using the equivalent of, you know, 10,000 epicycles. Uh, we call them Poisson series, Fourier series, whatever, but, but they're basically epicycles. But in any case, back in the 1500s, um, there was uh, Copernicus saying, well, actually, we can, we can redo the foundations of this. The actual computations, they work through something kind of like epicycles, but we can redo the foundations and say, actually, you know, the Earth is going around the sun. And um, that fact, the, the technical mathematical details of what Copernicus did, I don't know how many people cared about it at the time, but probably wasn't a huge number, didn't make much difference to how you compute things, still doesn't. Um, the, the, but, but what did make a difference was the philosophy of, but there is a different foundation. And in particular, in that case, it was like, people might say, but it's obvious the earth isn't moving. I mean, we're standing here and it, nothing's moving, right? But what, what Copernicus kind of made people start thinking is, gosh, it might be possible to take from science a... Uh, to have something which we can deduce from science that is at odds with our common sense. And that was a really fundamentally important um, observation that kind of led eventually to a lot of modern science. 
Well, now we're in a different situation. We're in the situation where people just sort of assume that science can compute everything. That, you know, if we have all the right input data and we have the right models, science will figure out this or that or the other. And that's, that's cool. But one of the things we learn, if, if we learn that our universe is fundamentally computational, that throws us right into the idea that, okay, computation is a paradigm we really have to care about. The, the sort of the big transition was from, oh, we're going to use equations to describe how everything works, to we're going to use programs and computation to describe how things work. And that's a transition that's actually happened after sort of 300 years of equations. The transition time to using programs has been remarkably quick, a decade or two. And um, it's kind of, a, kind of a dramatic thing. But I think we haven't yet come to terms with sort of what it really means that we think about our world computationally. And in fact, one area that really, despite the transformation of many fields of science into this kind of computational models uh, direction, one area that was a holdout was fundamental physics. In any case, if we can you know, firmly establish this fundamental theory of physics, we kind of know it's computation all the way down. Once we know it's computation all the way down, we kind of are forced to think about things computationally. One of the consequences of thinking about things computationally is this phenomenon of computational irreducibility. You can't get around it. And that means that we have always had the point of view that you know, science will eventually figure out everything. But computational irreducibility says that can't work. It says even if we know the rules for a system, it may be the case that we can't work out what that system will do any more efficiently than basically just running the system and seeing what happens. They're just doing the experiment, so to speak. We can't have a predictive theoretical science of what's going to happen. So to me, this is interesting because it is, in a sense, computational irreducibility is a very from-within-science kind of thing. It's as if science is explaining its own limitations from within the science itself. It's not somebody coming from the outside and saying, oh, science isn't everything. You also have to think about, uh, I don't know, some, some human values thing which or the mind, which science can't deal with, and some people might say. But what computational irreducibility is, it's a, it's a creature that is emerging from science itself. And it's coming and kind of eating science or some kinds of ideas about how science works from the inside. And it's kind of a, you know, what computational irreducibility is really telling one is there are limitations to what you can expect can be uh, sort of established with the kind of simple-minded view of what science is, that science is the thing that makes immediate predictions about what's going to happen and so on, that that really isn't the true story of what science can do. And so I think that's sort of an interesting, you know, if I'm, if I'm to, to speculate on kind of the longer-term consequences of, of success in sort of finding the fundamental theory of physics and showing that it's computational, I think this, this realization that, yes, computation really is the fundamental thing in our world, and therefore the phenomena of computation are things that we have to take seriously through and through, that's a potential consequence there. And um, uh, probably more so than saying, you know, are we going to build warp drive quickly by using the, uh, you know, the technology that exists now that we know how space really works. Okay, so let's just talk a little bit about uh, this project of, of, of mine um, to, you know, find the fundamental theory of physics like, why wasn't this done before? Who likes it? Who, who doesn't like it? Who finds it confusing? And so on. Here's, 
the thing. You know, this is, uh, uh, this project has sort of emerged from a, a paradigm, a view of the world that I've kind of developed over the last, I don't know, 40 years or so from thinking about things computationally. And I had kind of expected that the prong that I would build, I wasn't sure this would relate to physics at all. You know, it wasn't obvious. It's not self-evident that some uh, way of thinking about things should be the way our universe happens to work, but, but it seems like it is. Um, and uh, sort of having, I thought that what we would build is a prong that is quite separate from the traditional thinking about physics. The big surprise of the last few months is that a lot of what we figured out sort of dovetails beautifully with a lot of interesting things that people have figured out in kind of mathematical approaches to physics. It's a big surprise. And it's a, it's a, it's a sort of wonderful unification. But, you know, I think as I look back, I think there were basically three big mistakes in the history of physics um, that kind of made it more difficult to see what we're now seeing. I mean, the other piece is not having this computational paradigm. But one mistake is a Euclid mistake which is the idea that space is continuous, a point is indivisible, that, the, 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 that there's a continuum of space, that space isn't made from sort of discrete atoms. That's one, one thing which I think was sort of a wrong turn. Another wrong turn was uh, early 1900s, the idea of space-time. I mean, Einstein didn't really talk about that. He talked about space, he talked about time. Then Minkowski came along and said, look, mathematically, it's really convenient to package space and time together and think of them as the same kind of thing. I think that was, a, in the end, a mistake. Um, the, the, the same results emerge, but you think about them differently. And the third one, more recently realized, is in quantum mechanics, the, the description of how things work quantum mechanically, that quantum amplitudes are complex numbers. I think that's a mistake. In mathematical terms, a complex number can be described as a magnitude and a phase and I think that those really have to be separated. They come from different places. The, you know, you can package them together as a complex number that confuses things. But okay, so, so when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, as I say, I thought that what we were, had, were doing was going to be a prong that was completely separate from the traditions of modern mathematical physics. It's not the case. The machine code is different. The low-level motivations are different. But the mathematics that shows up has many commonalities. Take string theory, for an example. The, you know, in the original formulation of string theory in the 1960s, string theory is formulated as a theory of strong interactions. Turns out that didn't work out. It was re-seated, re, re so to speak, in the 1980s as a theory of supergravity and so on. And I think that my guess is that the stuff we've done will provide another reseating of the same kind of... Um, uh, mathematical structures, but with a different low-level machine code, so to speak. So, you know, what I'm observing is, um, it's kind of interesting, actually. I mean, I, I'm observing uh, in our project a, um, well, a high degree of interest among uh, lots of kinds of people. I mean, it, it um, uh, both, uh, well, particularly, I don't know whether they're younger physicists, but they're certain kinds of physicists. Uh, pe people who, okay, so there are people who right now work on fundamental physics and there are people who don't right now work on fundamental physics. I think we'll see a bunch of people who don't right now work on fundamental physics who are starting to work on it. Particularly, particularly immediate flow is people who work on distributed computing because it turns out one of the things that comes out of our models 
is that the problems, the core problems of distributed computing are very similar to some of the core problems of understanding space-time and quantum mechanics and so on. Um, so there's, a, there's an immediate flow there, and there, I think there will be results from, that are both extremely powerful in distributed computing from thinking about physics and powerful in physics from thinking about distributed computing. So that's a, a kind of a, a trade route that is being opened up. Um, I think similarly with some areas of mathematics, there's kind of a areas of mathematics where, which didn't, which, where we didn't know they would have any relevance to physics, but we now see that they have. Now, when it comes to sort of the, the core of the fundamental physics world, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's like everything. There's a, there's a diversity of responses. One very common response, a couple of common responses. One is, what about this really simple case? What about this really simple physics, you know, system? How does that fit in? One of the problems there is that our model is very complete. And so if you are doing some weird idealization that imagines that you can set up an experiment like this or that, well, maybe you just can't do that in our model because our model is representing the real world. I, I, actually, that may not be as much of a problem as I, I was initially thought, thinking it was going to be. Um, another, uh, another kind of thing is people say, oh, you know, what can you predict from your theory? Well, you know, usually when theories start, it isn't, sometimes you're lucky and there's some immediate dramatic prediction. A lot of the times it is, in a sense, a theoretical prediction that's the most important, and that's a lot of what's going on right now. The theoretical prediction is, you know, we know a bunch of stuff about physics as physics is, is understood today. Can we reproduce those known things? And can we make the prediction that as we go exploring our models, we're going to find that they correspond to existing physics? They may say some things that are different from existing physics, but that they will successfully reproduce existing physics. Um, that's sort of the theoretical prediction. Or, or is it going to be the case that as we poke in this direction, oh, no, no, our model doesn't work there. We have to add all kinds of extra stuff to reproduce existing physics. That's, um, you know, so I think that's a... That's a thing. It's like, well, show me an experimental prediction. Well, actually, we have a whole class of experimental predictions. There is one problem, which is we don't know a scale factor. We don't know uh, things like the maximum entanglement speed in quantum mechanics, which might be maybe 10 to the 5 solar masses per second, but it might be uh, 10 to the minus 18 solar masses per second, or it might be 10 to the 50 solar masses per second. We know there's some value. We just don't know what that value is. And so if you're going to do experiments, it's not so easy to design those experiments without knowing that. But I think we will see, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have experiments. I mean, the other thing to realize about theories is, you know, experiments are hard. And, you know, if we look at, like, like Newton, for example, had, um, you know, in his Principia, he made a prediction about the position of the moon. His prediction was wrong by a factor of two. Actually, it wasn't a prediction because he already knew the answer and he already knew it was wrong by a factor of two. But he didn't give up on his theory because of that. He just said, well, the computation is hard and the theory is still fine, but it's just we need to work harder on the computation. It took another 100 years before that computation was done reasonably accurately. Bad things happen both at the level of the experiments that are done, at the level of the computations necessary to see how the experiments will come out. And it's, you know, it, it's a wrong approach particularly at this stage in a very big theory like this, to be asking, you know, show me a particular, you know, experimental result, because it's usually quite a long tower to get to measurable things. And there are other phenomena 
where where um, uh, you have to know the scale factor, you have to know the value of Planck's constant. You could have said, I've invented quantum mechanics, but I don't know the value of Planck's constant, so I don't know when you observe these different phenomena, I just don't know how big they'll be. And then it's very hard to go to tell people, go out and try and observe these things. You know, there, there are predictions of our models that say this should happen. Like there will be a maximum entanglement speed in quantum mechanics. We just don't know how big it is. And that's an, a, a different idea that hasn't really existed in, from, other, from other parts of physics. It's kind of exciting because it's this period when, you know, a lot can get discovered qu fairly quickly. I mean, physics hasn't been in this state for fundamental physics hasn't been in the state for a long time. It wasn't, it's been in the state before. I mean, it was in, in the state, uh, you know, 100 years ago, roughly, in the early days of quantum mechanics. Uh, you know, it was a, a period of rapid discovery. And, you know, fields go through these cycles. And I think physics um, has not been in a rapid discovery state for a long time. And uh, I think that, the, that when, when a field is not in a rapid discovery state, it develops a certain rhythm and a certain culture that's different from what it should have and, and, and can have in a rapid discovery phase. In a field where one is, you know, seven academic generations away from the time when there was rapid discovery, the field develops a certain sort of institutional character and sort of cultural expectation that, um, I, you know, I, I have to say, I am pleasantly surprised at the, uh, uh, at the level of... Um, kind of uh, absorption of what we're doing. Uh, I have to say I was, I was fully expecting um, uh, much less uh, absorption. I, I can't say that the absorption is perfect or infinitely rapid, but um, I think, you know, I think we're, we're on a good path. And um, I think that the, uh, uh, it's an interesting dynamic because we're seeing, you know, we do these live streams where we're actually showing the actual science being done, and we'll routinely get, you know, hundreds, thousands of people watching these things. And that's a, a new and different uh, way of experiencing science and the progress of science than has ever existed before.